Well, I really loved preaching through Hebrews 11. I guess it is possibly my favorite chapter in the Bible, particularly when it comes to exhorting believers to do the Word. Um, I do love it. It grips my heart and it grips my soul. In Hebrews 11, God says, this is my definition of faith. It's not some man's definition. It's not some denominational definition or some priest or some pope or some preacher somewhere. God says, this is my definition of faith. This is what it looks like. If your life, if you call yourself a Christian and your life doesn't look like this, then you may not be a believer at all. This is what it looks like. God is unequivocal here in Hebrews 11. Men in religion tend to want to make faith something less than what God says it is. Men in religion want to make it a little more manageable, a little less supernatural. Men in religion tend to make it uh, more abstract, more theoretical, more academic, more of an intangible, vague kind of nebulous thing. Men in religion love to reduce faith to merely uh, mental assent to facts, uh, merely being orthodox, merely saying yes to the dogma. In Hebrews 11, God gives us His definition. And He says, so as I said to you all the way through Hebrews 11, so you can't dumb it down, so religious professionals like me can't dumb it down. God says, here are a whole list of men and women who actually lived it out. So God gives us illustration after illustration. Men and women who actually did what God calls real faith. And if we just do a superficial read through Hebrews 11, we see that it's anything, anything but mental assent. It's anything but just simply showing up for church. It's, it's much more than just being a church member. In fact, God doesn't mention any of those things in Hebrews chapter 11. God says, real faith is real men and real women with real faith in a real God, getting their real hands dirty in the real world, making a real difference, a real impact in this fallen world. Hebrews 11. Real blood, real sweat, real tears. <laughs> okay? This is God's definition. Sometimes, as we talked about last week, sometimes it's tears of joy as God shows up in His mighty power and does miraculous things in our life. Other times, tears of sorrow, as we saw last week particularly. Men and women who trust and obey the Lord sometimes are martyred for the cause of Christ. We understand that. That doesn't mean God is not faithful. It means God is magnifying Himself differently in their lives. Sometimes tears of joy, sometimes tears of sorrow, but God is always God. God is always good. God is always doing Romans 8.28. So God says real faith shows up. It works. It struggles. It falls. It gets up again. It repents. It fights. It does acts of righteousness. It sees miracles. It conquers. 
And it obtains promises. And as we saw last week, sometimes in God's perfect wisdom and providence, real faith is mocked, it's scourged, it's tortured, it's imprisoned, it's stoned, and it's sawn in two. Beloved, if you're going to have a full-orbed biblical view of faith, you have to understand this. As John Piper says so well, you can't really be a Christian if you don't understand this. That if you go in faith, yes, God may deliver you, but God may show His beauty in you as He allows you to suffer through persecution. And as we talked about, in many ways, this is a much more powerful lesson for the world to see that God is worthy to suffer for. Amen? Our God, Jesus Christ, is worthy to suffer for. He satisfies my heart so fully that I'm willing to suffer for Him. Beloved, this is in many, many ways a much more powerful message to to the fallen world than if God shows up in great power and delivers us. You know, as we said last week, he may do one, he may do the other. This is up to God. What does a Christian do? Whether he delivers us or whether he satisfies us through the torture, what does a Christian do? We worship, right? That's our job. Our job is not to question why he does it this way or why he did it in that man's life that way, why he did it in her life that way. The Christian's job is to simply worship. It's to simply believe and trust the Lord. And to worship, we talked about it last week, our God is God enough to live for and our God is God enough to die for. I love how David says it in Psalm 63.3, Your loving kindness is better than life. Paul said it beautifully in Philippians 1.21, To live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you really believe that, if you, know, if, if you own Philippians 1.21 for yourself, you're a real Christian. You know, you have no limitations. If you really believe that life is all about Him, and to, to, to live is about Him, but to die is simply gain, right? As I, some of you are aware, I preached my dad's funeral two months ago, and, and I, I couldn't help but, but rejoice. It was infinite gain for my dad to go and be with his Lord and his Savior. As we talked about last week, the true Christian, the maturing Christian, The biblically knowledgeable Christian, the biblically literate Christian, understands that God is better than anything this life can give, and God is better than anything death can take. As we talked at length about last week. I think I could just keep preaching Hebrews 11 over and over and over and over again. I think that would be fun for me. It would probably be bad for you. You might get a little bored. But I was, as I was saying earlier, you can't get to Hebrews 11.40 and not preach Hebrews 12.1. It's, it's impossible. It would be ministerial malpractice to simply leave that therefore in chapter 12, verse 1, just hanging there. You can't really do it in any kind of good conscience. God says, Hebrews 11, this is my definition of faith. You must not only believe that I am, you must believe that I'm a rewarder. Oh, here's a bunch of men and women that did it. Then God says, therefore. And this is addressed to you, right? Therefore. Therefore what? Oh, therefore go do it. To sum it up, Jim's paraphrase, go do it. This is what God is saying in uh, Hebrews 12, verse 
one. You can't just leave the therefore. You know, I had a preacher, I know you've heard this before, some of you guys have been in church for some time, you've heard every preacher that you ever said under say this, but you know, anytime you see a therefore in the text, you're supposed to what? Understand what it's there for, right? I mean, you've heard this before. So we have to understand what it's there for. And God is exhorting us tonight to live our faith. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, we need to understand what God is saying to us. And I want to say this. You guys know this. Your circumstances and your lives, your stories, it won't be like Abraham. It's not going to be like Sarah. It's not going to be like Noah. It's not going to be like Moses. It's not going to be like Rahab. Your story is completely unique. It's you and God. And your life is completely unique. He's never made anyone like you. And He's never worked exactly like uh, in anyone else's life, like He's working in your life. You are unique. And God means to use you in a unique way. Your story's not going to be like uh, any of these stories in, in the particulars, but in general it's going to be just like their lives. Men and women who believed God was enough to live for. And if it comes to it, I doubt any of us will be martyred. Some of us may go home to countries where there's violence against Christians. I doubt if many of us would be martyred in this room. But if it comes down to it, He's worthy. Amen? He's worthy. He's worthy. He is worthy. God says, I want you to do Hebrews 11. This is what the Lord is saying to us tonight. In victory and in defeat, in abundance and need, in blessing and trial, in life and death, the men and women of Hebrews 11, their lives shouted, I love this God. This God is my life. I love Him. I love Him more than anything else. And I give myself away to Him even as He has given Himself away to me. As we've said many, many times, the world God means for the world to read Jesus off your life. In your work, and in your family, in your church, uh, in your school, in your neighborhood. Real Christianity has never been abstract or theoretical. It's never been that. Biblical faith is a verb. It's always been a verb. <laughs> you look it up, I know, you look it up in a dictionary, you look up the word faith in a dictionary, it says noun, right? But if we understand it biblically, it is a verb. We are called to, we are called to hear the word but never do anything about it, right? Isn't that what, isn't that what James says? It says it's okay to talk about it, but you don't really have to do anything about it. Is that what James says? James says you're supposed to be word doers, beloved. So, this is what the Lord is going to exhort us to do from Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. You know, the question is not whether God is God enough. He's God enough. The question is, do you believe He's God enough? And will you act on the fact that He is God enough? Verse 1, before I get... Get, um, let me just read it again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let, the, let us run with endurance the race that is set 
before us. The point of the first verse is at the end of the verse, so I'm going to start at the end. Are you with me? I'm going to start at the end. The point of the verse is that you are supposed to run. You are supposed to run in the Christian faith. So let's unpack that and understand what it means. Paul uses this metaphor several times in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I run with an aim, I run to win. Right? In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I don't run in vain. Galatians chapter 5, he says, he says of the church there, he says, you were running well. And then in Philippians chapter 2, he said, we did not run in vain. Paul uses this metaphor quite a bit. So it gives us a strong picture of what is meant here when God speaks about being in a race and running this race. If you look up the Greek word here, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, translated race, the Greek word is agon, which is the, the, the root from which we get agony in the English. Of course, the picture is we are here to spend ourselves for the Lord Jesus. Christians are called to spend themselves for Christ. We're not called to a passive, strolling, coasting, meandering jog of faith. That's not the, the picture here. We're in this race to win it. We're to be self-disciplined and determined. It's a sprint. We're to be persevering, all-consuming and passionate. What did Jesus say in Luke 13? He said, well, just stroll on into the gate if you can. What does Jesus say? He says, strive to get in the narrow gate. Beloved, real Christianity, real Christianity is a spending of ourselves. We're not saved in that way. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We understand that. But if we understand the Bible, it is a call to discipleship. It is not a call to merely being a church member and merely attending church. It is a call to discipleship. Those are synonyms in the Bible. There's never any uh, dichotomy between being saved and being a disciple. We, you know, we, we don't have to become a disciple to be saved. We become a disciple because we are saved, right? Because we, we, we're hopelessly in love with this awesome God who redeemed us at great expense to Himself. So don't misunderstand. We're not earning our salvation. We're pouring ourselves out because we love Him. We love Him. God says, run the race. And as Paul said elsewhere, run to win. We understand that lukewarm religion is the antithesis of biblical Christianity. It is the antithesis of biblical Christianity. We see it so many places all over the world. This lukewarm religion. Tipping your hat to God on Sunday and, and going out into the world and doing whatever you want. Living like you want. We understand, obviously, that this is not biblical Christianity. I heard one preacher, one time he was preaching this text. Um, he says it's, it's like a, a salmon. The picture here is like a salmon going what? Upstream. I mean, you've got to be highly motivated. Those fish have to be highly motivated to go upstream. They swim upstream. You know, any old dead fish can float downstream. But... The analogy is that a Christian would be like that salmon. 
exerting energy, spending themselves to obey the Lord. So as we make our way quickly through these two verses here, I want you to test yourself. Are you running? I want you to look at yourself. I want you to ask yourself these questions. Are you running with Jesus? Are you spending yourself for Christ? Or are you coasting? Are you uh, running or are you meandering? Are you a half-hearter or are you whole-hearted? Are you white-hot with God? Or are you lukewarm with Him? God is challenging us here to, to be in the race, to run the race. We're not to be spectators, beloved. We're not to be spectators. Christianity is not a spectator sport, right? You understand it. It is not a spectator sport. God has called us to run. He's called us to win. You know the, the way that Pilgrim's Progress, that great book, begins. I know I've shared this with you many times, but the analogy is too perfect not to use tonight. You remember that Christian is standing there. He's in agony. He encounters the evangelist. And the evangelist says, what's your problem? And Christian says, well, I have this weight on my back and it's gonna, I'm, I'm afraid it's going to sink me into the grave and down into hell. And the evangelist says, well, if that's your problem, what are you, do, what are you doing just standing here? And Christian says, I don't know what to do. You remember what the evangelist told him to do? He said, you see that narrow gate across the field? Run! Do you remember that? And Christian was off on his pilgrimage. So, are you running with God? Are you running with God? Have you come to Christ by faith? Have you made a public profession of faith? Have you followed Him in believer's baptism? And are you radically obeying Him in your life? This is what the Lord is talking to us, each of us about tonight. Obviously, the truths of this verse are, are principally for those who are already in Christ, but it's an invitation as well to those who are not yet in Christ to start running the race even today. Okay, back to the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. God says, what does this mean? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, this, this text is often mistaught and mispreached and misunderstood. Uh, what is meant by these cloud of witnesses? Some confuse this text and claim that the men and women of Hebrews 11 are in heaven watching us and cheering us on. Uh, beloved, that's not really what the text is talking about. Uh, what God, what, what, what's being talked about here is, is that these men and women, we're witnessing what they did. They're not looking forward to us. We're looking back at them. And God is saying, look how they lived. And God says, they did it. I want you to do it. That's what's being said here in the text. We're to witness what they did to be encouraged and emboldened and do the same thing in our own life. They're not the onlookers. We are the onlookers. We are to examine their life. And as we've talked about, as we've gone through Hebrews 11, it's really not about them and it's really not about you. It is about God. God is the main character in Hebrews 11. God is the main character. So whether it's the first century or 
500 B.C. or 2011, God is God. He hasn't changed. Again, He's worthy to follow. He's worthy to live for. You know, sometimes people will say to me, I'm not, Jim, I'm not like Noah. I'm not like Abraham. I'm not like Sarah. I'm not like Moses. I'm not like David. I can't, I can't do what they did. And I say, God's not calling you to do what they did. God's calling you to do what He wants you to do. And I don't know what that is. You do if you're a Christian tonight. You know what He's called you to do. You know it. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. God's not calling you to be, to, to be them. That's not the call at all. You know, sometimes what's being said there is, is I don't stack up. I'm not enough man or woman to, to actually go with Jesus. Wrong. You are. It doesn't matter how you stack up. It matters how God stacks up. It's always been this way in the Bible. God would always take a pathetic people and do a mighty thing. This is what God does. I'm a living testament to this. And some of you are too. He takes, yeah, you know, well, look at Hebrews 11. You know, are you as good or as strong or do you have as much potential as a murderer, as an adulterer, as a coward, as a liar? That's what we have in Hebrews 11. Do you know what these men and women did? They repented of their sin. And they got up. And they walked with God. You know, beloved, it's about finishing, right? <laughs> it's about finishing. It's not about how you start. There's a lot of people who start off great. They start off great. They can talk it big. You run into them ten years later and they're nowhere with Christ. They sat down. It's not how you start, beloved. It's how you finish. <laughs> it's how you finish. I hope you'll keep that in mind. These men and women live like they did because their God is God and our God is God. It's not because they were so outstanding or their CVs were so impressive. It was because their God was so outstanding and He is so impressive. <laughs> And as I say to you, as I've said in Hebrews 11, the whole series, you have no limitations with God. So if you're a mediocre Christian, it's your fault. You say, well, Jim, that's pretty harsh. I know. I sit behind my desk this week, and the Lord challenged me in some areas where I'm pretty mediocre. And He says, Jim, it's your fault. You don't have to be mediocre like that anymore. I'm God. If you'll come with me, if you'll obey me, if you'll believe me, if you'll trust me, we can work out some of that mediocrity still in your life. Still in your life. I love how Paul said it. You know, Paul was maybe the, one of the greatest men who ever lived, right? He was bold. He was courageous. He was fearless. How did he do it? Philippians 4.13 Paul says, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. Actually, through Christ who strengthens me. So the question is, are you running? Are you sitting down? Are you running? Or are you meandering? Are you running? Or are you coasting? God says run. Run the race. God says run the race. Run 
the race. The second thing I want to show to you here in verse 1, it talks about the, the, uh, the encumbrances. It says, lay aside uh, encumbrances that hinder. The Greek here is, lay aside the mass or the burden or the weight that impedes you or slows you down. And the metaphor, since we're in this metaphor of running, it's, it, the picture is this. It's like, you know, you're a world-class athlete and you show up to run a, a marathon and you've got a 40-pound backpack on your back. Well, you're not going to win. You're probably not even going to make it to the finish line. That's what the, the picture is here, these encumbrances. It's not talking specifically about sin because we're going to talk about sin next. You look at it in the text, right there next, it talks about sin. What are these encumbrances? Well, you know, it may not be something you can find written in the Bible that says it's wrong. You may not be able to, to find it written anywhere that it's a sin in anyone's doctrinal statement or anything like that. But it's an encumbrance to you. You know it's an encumbrance in your life. It's keeping you from giving full attention to Jesus Christ. It's that habit, that concern, that anxiety, that fear, that doubt. That thing that you do that just wastes hours upon hours upon hours of time. It's that desire, that pursuit, that indulgence, that affection, that hobby. It's not wrong in and of itself, but it's wrong because of how you've allowed it to become too much a part of your life. God says, get rid of that stuff and run. Throw off the backpack and run. That's the picture we have here. Get rid of those encumbrances. I love what John Piper says here. I want you to listen to me. Listen to this. This is really, really good advice. He said, the question shouldn't be, is this or that wrong? Or is this or that a sin? The question should be, does this or that help me in the race? Do you understand what's being said here? It's not simply, is it wrong? And can I find it in chapter and verse in the Bible? Does this thing in my life, does it help me run? Does it help me walk with Jesus? Does it help me be a man or woman of faith? Also, there's something here we need to understand in the context. It's very important that we understand this. There's a reason this book is called Hebrews, right? It's a letter to the Hebrews. And the Hebrews are encumbered. How are they encumbered? Someone tell me. The law. The Hebrews, very good, Eleni. The Hebrews are, in, you know, ear deep in this religious system of self justification. They're ear deep in it, right? And they think they got to stay in legalism and Judaism and the law. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, it's gone. You run by faith with Christ. That's what's being said here. So don't let dead religion. Encumber you. Beloved, I meet so many people who are so messed up because of Christian religion. Pseudo, you know, false religion. Even Christian religion. So many people have got so many weird ideas that you can't... They're, they're not in the Bible at all. Don't be encumbered by religion. We stay on the text. We stay on Scripture. In this church, that's who we are. That's what we do. Charles Spurgeon said it right about religion. He says, it's simply painted pageantry to go to hell in. And beloved, 
I'm, I want you to understand, I'm talking about pseudo-Christian religion as well as all the false ones. And there are many false expressions of Christian religion. Catholic and Protestant. We understand that if we read our Bibles. So God is challenging us to test ourselves. Are we merely religious or are we a disciple of Jesus? God says, whatever's encumbering you, get rid of it. Throw it down. Thirdly, look what God says. He says, He talks about the encumbrances and He also talks about the sin. The sin that entangles. i got a great illustration here. I stole it from some preacher I heard, I don't know, ten years ago or something. How many of you know what kutsu is? Anybody know what kutsu is? It's a, I'm from the south in the U.S. and there's a vine in the south uh, in that region of the country and, it, and it's called kutsu and it grows 1.5 feet a day. Okay? Wait a minute, I'll tell you how many meters that is or whatever. I think I did the calculation. Oh, it's a half a meter. It, it does that in a day. I mean, it just takes over huge swaths of land, right? It just takes it over. It, it, can, bring, it can kill a mighty oak tree uh, in a pretty short period of time as it smothers it to death. That's what sin is in your life. <laughs> sin is like kutsu. If you, if you don't eradicate it, you will become so entangled in it. It will destroy. It will destroy your life. Unrepented, unconfessed sin. It's like trying to run a hundred yard dash through a thicket of kutsu. That's what it's like. God says, lay it aside, put it down, and run. I love how the message paraphrases Hebrews 12.1. It says it like this. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. This is what God is saying to us. I love that paraphrase. Verse 2, God says if you're going to run this way, race, what does He say? Someone tell me. What does He say? If we're, if we're actually going to do this, if we're going to do it right, if we're going to be successful at this, what is God's counsel in the verse, very first part of verse 2? He says, you've got to look at My Son. You have to look at My Son. If you're going to live a life of faith, you have to look at My Son. We'll stay with the running metaphor. I was a sprinter in junior high school and I would line up and I'd get in the blocks and, and the, the, the gun would sound and I would run. And I would run to the, to the line. It was 100 yards in the States. It was a 100-yard dash, right? And if you're, running for the, if you're running a dash to the finish line, what are you supposed to be looking at? You already know. The finish line. If you look at anything else, you're going to lose, Right? If you start looking to your left or you start looking to your right, you're not only going to be slowed down, you're probably going to come out of your lane and you're probably going to fall. This is what the Lord's saying to us. You've got to be a sprinter. Look at the finish line. The finish line is someone tell me. Oh, it'd be so cool if one of you knew what the finish line was. I say it in here all the time. What are we supposed to point at? The Bema Seat. That's the finish line for us. The Bema Seat. Where we'll look Jesus in the eye and give an account. Beloved, are you pointing at the Bema Seat? That's our finish line. That's what the Lord is saying. Look at how Jesus lived it. 
He's the author and perfecter of faith, but also be looking out at Jesus. Look at, it, look at the finish line, which is Jesus Christ. Listen again to the message, how it paraphrases verse 2. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how He did it, because He never lost sight of where He was headed. Listen to this. I want you to hear this. That exhilarating finish in and with God. Beloved, is that a reality? Is that like, is that the focus of your life? Jesus. And, and the, the finish line, the exhilarating finish in and with God. That's how the men and women of Hebrews 11 did it. They were looking at God. Go back and study the text for yourself. Three or four, maybe five different times heaven is mentioned. They were looking at uh, uh, the celestial city. They were looking at God's city, a better country. And as we talked about last week, the beauty of the Hebrews 11 life is whether these men or women escaped the edge of the sword, verse 34, or whether they were put to death by the edge of the sword, verse 37, they went after God. Circumstance didn't really matter. God mattered. And beloved, I know some of you are probably in difficult circumstance. We all encounter difficult circumstances in, the, in this fallen world. We all do. But circumstance doesn't dictate to the Christian. It doesn't dictate to us. We look at God. We look at God. And I just want to, uh, as we close, I just want to quickly summarize what we saw in chapter 11. This progression of faith, this maturation of faith that we saw that overlaid the chapter. Remember in verses 7-12, through 12, we saw that faith is always initiated by God. God does this. Men don't seek God. We understand this biblically. There's not a man on the planet who's ever sought for God. God seeks sinners that they might become worshipers, right? It's the only thing in the Bible that you find God seeks for. He seeks for sinners. But we understand... Uh, men do not seek God. God has sought for men. So I know God has made an overture to you because you're sitting here and you're hearing the Word of God preached. He's made an overture to you. Have you responded to Him by faith? That's a question for you. Have you received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And are you in the process of giving yourself away to Him? More and more and more and more. You know, as you grow as a Christian, you just you discover those areas. Man, I, I really haven't given all that to God yet. You just you keep you keep tripping over these things. So it's a progress. It's a progression. It's a lifestyle. Verses thirteen to, to nineteen, we saw that real faith, if it's real, it, it spills out into the life. It produces a seeker of God. It produces a word doer. So I'm going to ask you, are you a true seeker of God and are you a word doer? If you're, not, if you're neither one of those things, you're not a Christian at all, beloved. You may be, you may be uh, a Catholic, you may be a Protestant, but you're not a, you're not a disciple of Jesus. If those two things are not true of you, if you're not a seeker and you're not a word doer, I, I say this on the authority of God's Word. Again, I'm not preaching works. That's not what I'm preaching. We're disciples because we love Him. <laughs> we don't become disciples to, to earn our salvation. We become disciples because we love Him so much we cannot resist obeying Him. 
and honoring Him in our lives. Verses 23-29, to we saw that real faith makes hard decisions and it does hard stuff in obedience to God. Are you willing to believe God like that, beloved? You know, when the pressure's on, the job's on the line, the marriage is on the line, um, the finances are on the line, I don't know what's on the line, are you willing to believe God then? Are you willing to trust Him then? Oh, beloved, that's when God really comes. <laughs> you believe Him in the hard spot. You believe Him in the hard spot and He comes. And He reveals Himself to you in a mighty and new and a fresh way. Will you trust Him in the hard spot? Will you, will you do hard stuff for the glory of Jesus? Will you? Beloved, that's, you have a few moments on the planet. You're a vapor upon the earth. We don't have time to procrastinate. You can't waste tomorrow. You have a limited, finite number of tomorrows. You can't waste it. Will you do the hard thing? Lastly, verses 30 to 38, real faith knows that, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you know that, beloved? Do you know that? Does your life communicate that? Do the people around you get that? If, nine out of, if you ask nine out of ten people what your epitaph would be, would they say to live as Christ, to die as gain? Philippians 1.21. Beloved, that's a kind of aroma we need to be living out in the world. You remember Christian took off running. You remember what happened when Christian took off running? Someone tell me. When Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, when he took off running to, to the celestial city, anyone remember? Oh, it's great. You're going you're gonna to love it. His family and his friends, they come out to him and they yell to him, Stop! Stop running! And they have all these excuses that he should stop running. You know, you don't have to be a religious zealot. You don't have to go crazy with this thing. You know, be like everybody else. Just be religious. Just go to church. I'm paraphrasing a lot here. But they're saying, Don't run off! What did Christian do? <laughs> Christian stuck his fingers in his ears. And he was running. He said, life! Life! Eternal life! And beloved, that's what God's calling you tonight to. Run. He's calling you to run. If you're not running, repent tonight, beloved. If you're not running with Christ, repent tonight. Your life is way too short. Your life is way too short to give your affections to the world and to not be spilled out for Jesus. Beloved, when you stand before Him, I want to hear it. I know you want to hear it too. Well done. Don't you want to hear it? Well done. Well done. We're not any of us going to do it perfectly. We're all going to fall. We're all going to sin. But that's what repentance is about. That's what grace is for. You say, well, Jim, I've got this sin in my life. Well, get rid of it. Repent of it. Work through it. God will forgive you in Christ. His blood covers it. No excuses. So, that's what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is about. God says, 11, chapter 11 of Hebrews, this is faith. This is what it looks like. Therefore, go do it. So, beloved, go do it. Go do it. No compromises, no half measures. Go do it. Go do it. Uh, as the mouthpiece of God on the authority of the Word of God, I challenge each one of you here tonight, go do it. Go do the Word of God. Go do the Word of God. Go do the Word of God. 
Let's pray together. Beautiful Lord, beautiful Savior, beautiful Creator, beautiful Redeemer, we praise You. We thank You for this great text. Lord, I thank You. I need to be challenged. Lord, I want to go deeper. I want to run faster. I want to get rid of the encumbrances. I want to get rid of the sin. I know sin is a lifelong companion even for the Christian. But oh Lord, I want to continue to grow in, 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 in righteousness and in sanctification. I want to cooperate with the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Lord, I think that's what all of us want. We want to be mighty men, mighty women in the kingdom of God. We want to do business for these few minutes we have on the planet. We want to do spiritual business, kingdom business. So Lord, thank You for this exhortation. I pray that You would grant us the faith and the courage and the boldness to run the race to win. And that we would fix our eyes on the Bema seat. We would never lose sight of the Bema seat. That we'd understand that soon we will give an account to our awesome God and Lord. So Lord, thank You. Thank You that You never let us get lazy. Thank You that You never let us become mediocre. For Father, if we have become lazy or mediocre, it is our fault. We have not been listening to You. We have not been in Your Word. Because Father, You're always calling us to a deeper and higher place. And we thank You for that great God. And we give all praise and glory and honor to the name of Jesus. Amen.